The good life. That is what mankind has been seeking to define and obtain. Over the centuries, the good life has had many different names. The good life for the ancient Greek philosophers is eudaimonia, which is translated as human flourishing. In the medieval period, the good life is betis, which means happiness. In the Enlightenment period, the good life was mainly defined as individual excellence or success. The good life is the best life. And in modern psychology, the good life is self-actualization, or you might say reaching your potential. Today, I think a very popular term for the good life now is wellness or well-being. See, no matter how we define it or how we conceptualize it, we've all been looking and wanting the same thing. It's the good life. It's a vision for human flourishing and fulfillment. It's a vision of well-being that we've been taught to either create or to chase. To create or to chase. And so what are we to create or to chase? Is it financial security? Is it a happy family? Is it kicking personal goals? Is it being the best in what you do? Well, the Bible presents for us a far more satisfying picture of the good life. A good life that we don't create or chase, but receive when Jesus came to earth. Jesus gave us a vision of the good life in the Sermon of the Mount. A vision of his kingdom of true flourishing and fulfillment. A vision of what it looks like to live life to the full. Now, you might be scratching your head because if you're in any way familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you probably say, I don't really sense that Jesus says much good in the Sermon on the Mount. I think he says a whole lot of bad. I don't think it's the most enjoyable thing to read. Well, if that's you, then that's all right because C.S. Lewis felt exactly the same way. And here's a great quote from C.S. Lewis that I recently came across. He says, as for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? It feels like that, doesn't it, when we read the Sermon on the Mount? It feels like we're just being slammed by Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount rightly does do that, but I think it serves to do more. The purpose and the function of the Sermon on the Mount really depends on how you read the Sermon on the Mount. And I think there are four main ways to read the Sermon on the Mount. They're outlined in the bulletin. The first way to read the Sermon on the Mount is as a social blueprint to reform society. And those who read the Sermon on the Mount this way generally abandon the supernatural or salvation or judgment, but they really like moral teaching. And so they see that Jesus is a social reformer to help us essentially get along with each other in society. But the problem with this view of the Sermon on the Mount is that it wants to hold on to parts of Jesus' sermon whilst throwing away other parts of the sermon, as well as the rest of Matthew's gospel, which tells us about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. And so Sermon on the Mount can change society, but only supernaturally. And so it's not merely a human social blueprint. 
A second way is to read the Sermon on the Mount as moral demands to gain God's blessing. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us to obey God's laws and commandments in order to gain God's approval and thereby enter into God's kingdom. The problem with this view is that it goes against salvation by grace, which the Bible teaches us, the forgiveness of sins. And similarly, it also disconnects Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with the cross of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. The Sermon on the Mount does teach about God's laws and commandments, but it shows us how God's law is fulfilled by grace in Jesus. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not a moral demand to gain God's blessing, but they are moral commands to live out God's blessing. It's not how to get into the kingdom of God, but it's how to live in the kingdom of God. So the third way to read the Sermon on the Mount is to, that seeks to protect salvation by grace is to read that the sermon is impossible ideals to show our sinfulness. Jesus' sermon acts like a giant mirror and it says, this is what you can't live up to. And that is certainly true, right? All of God's commands in the Bible function in that way. They all hold up a mirror for us and ask us to evaluate our lives in light of God's commands. And so the Sermon on the Mount shows us our sinfulness in order to show our need for a saviour. That's definitely true, but the question is, is that all that the Sermon of the Mount does? Is it just to show us our need for the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God? Well, in my humble opinion, I don't think so. I think the Sermon on the Mount does more. And so please read Matthew's Gospel for yourself to check what I say, but I think the Sermon on the Mount functions to show us the kingdom of God to us aspire discipleship to Jesus. The way to read the Sermon on the Mount is to read it as a vision of life in the kingdom of God. So the question is, what is the kingdom of God? You may have learned that the kingdom of God is God's people under God's rule in God's place. You might learn that in uh, a previous church, perhaps. The kingdom of God is God's people under God's rule in God's place. And that rightly describes who is in God's kingdom and where it's located. And so at creation, the kingdom of God was the Garden of Eden, because that's where there was God's people under God's rule in God's place. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was at the tabernacle with Israel or in the temple. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom of God is now located in the church. The church is God's people under God's rule in God's place. And when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will come fully in the new heavens and new earth. That is all correct. But if you're like me, you might find that really unsatisfying because it doesn't really describe what the kingdom of God is like. It's like I get it's God's rule, it's God's people in God's place, but what is it like? So to help you understand what Jesus is trying to describe when he talks about the kingdom of God, I'm actually going to ask you to think about something that is completely different to you, to your ideas of kingdom and kingship. But it's linguistically similar. That is, it functions in the same way in language. So I want you to think about the great Australian dream. Think about the great Australian dream. What do we mean when we speak about the great Australian dream? What is it? Well, for those of you who might know Australian history and culture well, 
You will know that the great Australian dream is the belief that owning your own home can lead to a better life. It's this tangible symbol of upward social mobility, success and security. And the great Australian dream is that that should be accessible to all Australians. What the great Australian dream is, is really it's a vision, isn't it? It's a vision that encapsulates the desires and longings for prosperity, independence, success, flourishing, wellness into one paradigm term, the great Australian dream. The great Australian dream, to, to use a biblical term, is a kingdom. The great Australian dream is a kingdom. The kingdom of God is a rival kingdom. The kingdom of God is a paradigm term for a vision for the way things ought to be. It's a vision for true human flourishing. It's a vision of the satisfied, flourishing, happy life. It's a vision that we are invited to aspire to with our hopes and our dreams and our energy. The great Australian dream is a kingdom and the kingdom of God is a better kingdom where the good Lord reigns. And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's not just trying to tell you who's in the kingdom and where it's located, even though that's all factual. He's also trying to attract and capture your longings to be fulfilled in a new kind of life. He's offering you a new vision of the good life to live for. And that's why you will see Jesus use such provocative language, provocative imagery, because he's trying to capture your hearts to his vision of his kingdom. And this kingdom is not mythical or metaphorical, nor is it personal or private. It's real and actual. It's a new vision of the good life that you don't create or chase. It's a good life that you receive because Jesus came from heaven to earth to break forth the good life of heaven into our fallen world. And all of this is now on display when Jesus speaks about the vision in his most famous sermon. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a vision of the kingdom of God to make us want to aspire to follow Jesus as a way to realize the good life here on earth. Now, just stop for a sec. Now, doesn't that make you feel more excited about reading the Sermon on the Mount? Isn't that more exciting way to be captured by the kingdom of God. Doesn't that make you want to care and enjoy the Sermon on the Mount now? And so that is where we're going from now and to Easter. The Sermon on the Mount holds a mirror to show us that we need grace to enter into his kingdom, but it also shows us the blessed vision of the blessed life in the kingdom. It teaches us the new kind of life we ought to aspire to, the kind of character that the Holy Spirit produces in us. It shows us the kind of people we ought to be longing for, striving for, and by the grace of God, working towards. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount inspires us to stand in grace and to strive for his kingdom. And so I think that's gonna be our stadium chant here in Roselle, to stand in grace and to strive for the kingdom. Maybe someone can help me make it rhyme and make it a bit more catchy. To stand in grace and to strive for the kingdom. That is where we are going with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so notice that when 
Jesus starts a sermon on that, it doesn't start with commands, but beatitudes. Not you should, but blessed are yous. But before we dive into the Beatitudes, we're going to have to make sense of why Jesus preached on the mountain. Why are they sitting on the mountain and not typically teaching in a synagogue temple? Let's read chapter, one, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. The disciples came to him and he began to teach him. The setting here is actually very significant. Throughout all of Israel's history, God met and spoke with his people on the mountaintops. And throughout the ancient world around them, mountains were very considered very spiritual because they believed that was the highest point where heaven and earth touched. It's where you can get closer to God on mountaintops. And the most, most notable mountaintop experience for Israel was when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so Ma Matthew is presenting Jesus here as the new Moses, as the new teacher who would teach a new revelation about the kingdom of God. And so if Jesus is presented to us as a new teacher, the appropriate way to receive and respond his teaching, I think, is actually to take the posture of a student. Kids went back to school the past week. We're going back to school with Jesus over the next 10 weeks. And the fundamental posture of a student is to sit and listen. That's what the disciples did. They went on the mountain to sit and listen as Jesus taught them. If you want a beautiful image of what that posture looks like, you can find that in Luke chapter 10, which tells us about a very famous story about two women. Anyone guess? Mary and Martha. And the story tells us about how Mary is so unlike too busy Martha. We read that Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. We need to be Mary in a Martha driven world, don't we? We need to come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as a student with a spirit of humble, reverent reception, and that's postured by sitting and listening. And I really want to stress the importance of this. I'm not just making this point because it's a novel observation of the text. I'm emphasizing this point because how much really you will get out of the Sermon on the Mount really depends on your posture. In our culture today, everyone is an expert, apparently. Everyone has an opinion to shout out. No one wants to sit and listen. There's no esteem for teachers anymore. And so to really get the most out of this series, we really need to seriously commit ourselves to sit at Jesus' feet again. But we could also have a bit of fun to help reinforce perhaps your posture as students every time you come to church the next 10 weeks. Why don't you bring your backpack, your notebook, or maybe your pencil cases to church? And maybe you can check out each other's pens and stationery, and you're like, oh, you're a fountain pen guy. Well, I'm a gel point pen girl and it smells have a sniff <laughs> maybe why don't we laugh at each other's handwriting like we were back in school let's share our notes on our facebook and whatsapp group and guess what guys i'm actually going to give you homework 
Yeah, because today we are in class, and I'll tell you about your homework at the end of the sermon. Welcome to the Sermon of the Mount. So now that we've got our posture right, we can start to sit and listen to the first section of Jesus' teaching, which is known as the Beatitudes. And we're going to briefly walk through all nine Beatitudes, and in community groups, as they kick off this week, we can examine and discuss them more deeply. And in the sermon notes, you'll notice that I've grouped them into groups of three, and I'll explain that along the way. The starting point to understand the Beatitudes is to first understand the word blessed, because it's one of those words that sounds, what, very churchy, doesn't it? Very religious. Blessed be you. That just sounds weird today. Like, we don't really call up our work colleagues for a coffee catch-up and tell them, blessed be you, my friend. That sounds really weird, but so what does it actually mean here in the Beatitudes? The word blessed is actually makarios in the original Greek. And the word is actually really hard to translate into English because in all honesty, we have no exact equivalent for it. Some translations have blessed, which is what we have here in the NIV, and that's fine. But the tricky thing is that it's not the word used in the Greek or Hebrew for blessing from God, as in divine favor of your lives. So it actually is not that blessing from God. And so you can understand that's why we can read the Beatitude as virtues that will get us God's favor. But it's actually not referring to God's favor in the Beatitudes. And that's why some translation has gone with happy or fortunate uh, to move away the idea of favor to speak more about the state of being, which gets a bit closer to makarios. The tricky thing with the word of happiness, as you know, well, it's loaded with our Western understanding of happiness. We tend to think happiness is a subjective feeling based on our circumstances. Makarios refers to a deeper and more permanent happiness. It's this persistent state of being, not a fleeting feeling. And so some translations have also gone with congratulations because makarios was often used as a salutation rather than a statement. So a more closer definition of how we would define blessed is something like this. It's a persistent state of happiness and well-being. And so we're going to run with that definition of blessed as we go through the blessed salutations. It's a persistent state of happiness and well-being. And the Beatitudes is an invitation of what life is like in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes shows us the kind of persistent state and well-being a person is when living in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes proclaim to us, here is a person who is truly happy, truly well. Here's the person that we should aspire to. So let's examine the kind of person that is described. Jesus began in verse 3, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That is, blessed are those who acknowledge that they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who acknowledge that they are too poor spiritually to fix themselves. And so Jesus is parting way from our self-help culture. Because someone who is poor in spirit says, I don't have what it takes. I can't help myself. I don't have the power to change. 
But Jesus says those are the people that belong to the kingdom of God. Those are the people who experience true happiness because they won't be proud about their self-reliance or self-confidence, nor will they despair when they fail in their self-reliance and self-confidence. They are truly happy because they're poor in spirit to be free from having to try to be self-confident. He goes on to say, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not because they're melancholy, but because they mourn and grieve over sin in their lives. Blessed are those who mourn and grieve over the brokenness of the world. They go through life grieving, longing for something better, longing for restoration. And they will be blessed, for they will be comforted. Comforted by what? By the fact that Jesus is making all things new. By bringing a new kingdom here on earth, renewing all things that are broken. But you won't find that comforting if you're not grieved by the way things are. If there's no mournfulness for the way things are, then there's no longing for it to be made right. And so there is no joy in you when you find that Jesus is making it right. Those who mourn are truly happy because the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. Things are being made new and the things will be made new fully. Jesus goes on to say, verse 4, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually strength to put other people's interests first. The woman who is meek doesn't think too much about herself. The man who is meek is not sensitive or defensive about himself. Peter Crave, a commentator, says, the root of meekness is submissive trust in God. A meek person is one who understands what means to submit to God's providence and God's goodness and God's care. And so you don't have to fight for your agenda. You don't need to be pushy to be recognized. You don't need to assert your priorities. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The great Christian hope is that we don't get out of earth and go into heaven. Rather, the great hope is heaven coming to earth. The meek are truly happy because it frees them to be humble and enjoy God's good providence and care for them. The first three Beatitudes are grouped because they characterize humility. A core aspect of the nature of the kingdom of God is humility. And so true happiness is found in kingdom humility, and the first three Beatitudes give us a vision of what happy humility looks like. We move on. Next, Jesus says, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they would be filled. Hunger and thirst, they're cravings and longings that don't go away until they're satisfied. Jesus says, blessed, happy are the people who long for righteousness like that, a craving for righteousness that we will not be satisfied until it is attained. And so those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because it causes them to drive and pursue the answer to that longing, which is Jesus. Jesus quenches our thirst for righteousness by giving you his righteousness, by crediting his righteousness to you and who gives you the Holy Spirit that causes you to reject sin and to walk in righteousness. But this righteousness is not just personal righteousness. The scope of being hungry for righteousness is cosmic in scope. 
The Apostle Paul says what we're looking forward to is a new heaven and a new earth which righteousness dwells. The gospel is not just about personal righteousness. It's about longing to live in a righteous world, a world there is no evil, where righteousness dwells and is valued and is treasured. That is the world that we wait for when God's kingdom comes on earth, so it, as it is in heaven. Then Jesus says, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful people are those who act to offer help and compassion to those who are disadvantaged, helpless, and those who suffer injustice. And Jesus says to those who are sh show mercy would be shown mercy. And so the question is, does that mean that we earn God's mercy by being merciful to others? It kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? But it's not what it's saying. This is how the genius of how Jesus speaks throughout the Sermon of the Mount. You're going to see him do this all the time, where he says things in a way that gets the hooks in you, in a way that seems odd, in a way that forces you to step back and reflect and wrestle with his words that he's speaking. That is the genius way of Jesus' teaching. But here's the paradox of mercy. If you're not merciful, it's not because God isn't willing to show you mercy, it's because you're unable to receive it. You see it in Asian culture, or in honor and shame culture, or in self-reliant cultures. People in these cultures will find it hard to receive the gospel, to receive salvation as an act of mercy, because they find it hard to admit that they need help. They find it hard to receive free mercy because they find it shameful to receive mercy and help. And so they feel this need to pay back mercy or to pay back help in order to remove any shame. And so generally, those who don't want mercy or a helping hand will find it hard to give mercy because their mentality is that if I succeeded without any help and mercy, then others don't need help or mercy either. See, Jesus knows our human nature so well. That it's not that he's not merciful, but it's that, that we find it hard to receive mercy ourselves because our heart is hardened by pride. Next, Jesus says, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart see obedience as not merely external conformity and observances. The pure in heart see obedience as loving God with their heart. And later in Jesus' sermon, he will expose the reality that you can be externally obedient, but your heart can be far away from God. You can be externally obedient with other motives other than loving God. And Jesus can see through that, and he will only reward those who obey with a pure heart. And that reward is to see and be with God to be in fellowship and friendship with God. Hunger for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, they're grouped together because they show the next core characteristic of the kingdom of God, which is righteousness. True happiness is found in kingdom righteousness. And these three beatitudes give us a beautiful vision of what happy righteousness looks like. On to the seventh beatitude, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. A peacemaker is someone who walks into conflict, 
to seek reconciliation, to resolve conflict instead of strife and war. They will be called children of God. They will be in his likeness, named in his family. Why? Because God is a peacemaker. God has made peace with us by sending his son, Jesus, to bear our sin punishment on the cross so that we would be at peace with God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of the righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice what it's not saying. It's not saying blessed are those who are weird or blessed are those who are obnoxious or blessed are those who always have to be right and it drives people crazy. There are many ways to be persecuted. And it could be because of a lack of wisdom or maturity, discernment or tact. But Jesus says blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Those who are living holy lives that is drastically different to everyone around them. Those who want to be more like God, and that puts them at odds with the world, at odds with those who reject and ridicule God. Jesus says, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven, because righteousness dwells in the kingdom of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are truly happy, not because they don't have pain or suffering or conflict. They're truly happy because righteousness itself is the good life. Righteousness is the kingdom of God. The last beatitude, verse 11, is an expansion of 10. Blessed are those when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Jesus spells out what persecution may look like. Insult, slander, malicious speech. And he reminds his disciples that in every age, the same with the previous prophets, God's people have always been under the gun. The last three Beatitudes show another core characteristic of the kingdom of God, which is peace. True happiness is found in kingdom peace. And the last three Beatitudes give us an honest vision of what happy peace looks like. It's a peace in the face of hatred and persecution. All right, so to bring all the Beatitudes all together, I'm actually going to hand out a handout. So that's your class handout for today, guys. So to bring all the Beatitudes all together, what we're going to do is compare the Beatitudes of the world, which I had a go at writing, to the Beatitudes of the kingdom. I'll read out the Beatitudes of the world. Blessed are the rich in spirit, for there is the self-made kingdom. Blessed are those who are carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for lust, for they shall be indulgent. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are those who follow their hearts, for they shall be their own gods. Blessed are the argumentative, for they shall be called winners. Blessed are those who are popular, for the world lies at their feet. Blessed are those who are praised by the world, for theirs is the kingdom of now. 
All right, when you compare the two, what is your initial response? Feel free to call out or put your hands up. What's your initial response? Sorry? You want to be part of? Don't want to be part of it. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's some other people's response? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, it, it, it feels almost normal, isn't it, the Beatitudes of the world? Yeah. Let's, let's have one more. Sorry? It's a very lonely way to be. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, yeah, it's quite selfish, isn't it? Very I, yeah. I'll tell you what my overwhelming response was when I compared the two. My overall response when you compare the two is to be struck about how out of this world the Beatitudes of the Kingdom of God is, isn't it? It's so out of this world. Like Matthew said, the Beatitudes of the world is so familiar, you almost agree with some of them, and it strikes you to see that this kind of life is impossible apart from grace, because it's just so out of this world. The other overall response that I had is how much I gravitated to the Beatitudes of this world. When you read that out, was that like your experience? You somehow, even though maybe cognitively you know that's wrong, but you gravitate to the Beatitudes of the world. And it should strike you how much the pull of the kingdom of the world has on us. It should strike you how much when you try to tackle your week this week, that you actually go to the modes of the kingdom of this world to try to tackle the things that you want to tackle this week, doesn't it? It should strike you of how much we need grace to resist the pull of the Beatitudes of the world. And so the Beatitudes should drive you to Jesus and his grace in two directions. Some of you here this morning hear about Jesus casting this vision that you want to be part of but you recognize that this life cannot be achieved on your own. It's somehow attractive, but you're struck with how impossible that you can create or chase it on your own. If that's you, Jesus is trying to provoke you to come to the end of yourself, to get to the place where you would humble yourself and enter his kingdom by relying on his grace for salvation, accepting his forgiveness of your sins by faith in his death and resurrection for you. And by standing by his grace, you can become this person. There are others of you who have come already into his kingdom. And so the Beatitudes also drive you to Jesus and his grace. Jesus provoking you to say, you mean that is what I'm supposed to be? I need grace. I need more of Jesus than what I have right now. I need more of the grace of the Holy Spirit to live out the kingdom of God. See, the Beatitudes is a mirror that drives us to salvation, but it's also a vision that pulls us to transformation. The Beatitudes has two functions. It's a mirror that drives us to salvation by grace, and it's a vision that pulls us to transformation by grace. The beatitude is a mirror and a vision. The beatitude is a mirror to drive us to stand in grace for salvation, and it's a vision for us to strive for the kingdom of God 
by grace. The Beatitude is a mirror and a vision to provoke us to aspire to follow Jesus, to rely on his grace because he alone can fulfill this wonderful vision. So the homework this week in community groups and for the next couple of weeks, I want to encourage you guys to memorize the Beatitudes and each week take turns to recite to one another the Beatitudes to remind us of what we should be pursuing in our life. And you can have some friendly incentives. We've been training Tristan to go to the potty, giving him M&Ms. If that helps, bring some M&Ms to community groups. Positive affirmation to remind us of what true happiness is. Class dismissed. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge you this morning that you are master teacher. And we thank you for showing us the blessed life in your kingdom. And we recognize that we are incapable of that kind of life. And so we are deeply, deeply thankful that this kind of life is something that we can receive as a gift and not something that we have to create or chase. I pray for my friends here today who realize that they are not living in the blessed life of your kingdom. I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would give them hunger and thirst for righteousness that will drive them to the grace and righteousness of Jesus. I pray for my dear friends who are good at hearing but are not so good at heeding what you say. We pray that by your Spirit you would awaken us to the vision of your kingdom. Pull us from our pride and our apathy to live as blessed heavenly people here on earth by depending on the grace of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please make us this kind of people. And when we fail, thank you that Jesus is the kind of person to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.